Please listen carefully. All right, I think we're live. So, Mike, welcome on to the podcast. Great to have you on. We're in a bit of a dead period, being in, you know, middle of September. So what have you what have you been up to recently in terms of the scouting stuff? I'm sure a lot of old tape, uh, probably some of the U19, U20 stuff, but what sort of what sort of scouting you've been doing recently? Yeah, thanks for having me on, first of all. But um, yeah, uh, what's it called? I just uh, during the offseason, I'll just go through all of the prospects like every like I'll create a watch list using stats and uh, just what I see on the like. Other draft sites, what I hear from, uh, you know, my peers on draft Twitter and so forth. And uh, yeah, just create a big, well, I think I had about 150 to maybe even close to 200 guys on the watch list. And then I kind of break it up into conferences because uh, that's easier to uh, watch for tape because, you know, guys play in conference usually against each other. So you could watch two teams that both have prospects on them. And, uh, you know, obviously breaking into internationals as well. And uh, so, yeah, I just that's what I do during the offseason. I would just go through all the prospects for to create my preseason big board and kind of have a touchstone for the upcoming season of where these guys were at last year. Yeah, that makes sense. How, how, how much work do you do scouting sort of like younger guys? So like guys that were you know, so the Cade Cunningham's Chet Holgrim's of the world, guys that aren't seniors yet. Yeah, so as soon as the draft, and this is usually my schedule, as soon as, so like this year was the 2019 draft, the day after, I start going into the AU stuff that's going to be for two years from now, so the 2021 draft. Uh, also, a lot of the problem with AU, though, is like you, it's difficult usually to find um, uh, replays or like old film of AU unless you have like synergy or like, you know, you work for a team, you have like access, but like for somebody like me who's just in the public, you know, sphere, a lot of AU I do have to watch live, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so like I'll, I'll watch some AU live during like, you know, like April 20th or like they have, I think a weekend usually in either late April or early May. And I'll try to, you know, spend that weekend watching uh, as much AU as I can. Uh, really, I focus on it during July. Usually I'll focus, I'll do my first work uh, for the draft two years from now. So, so this year was uh, the 2021 draft. So most of July I spent watching, um, uh, as much AAU tape as I could find. Some, a little bit of the high school. I don't usually put a lot of stock into high school um, film and uh, stats and so forth. But mostly, yeah, like AAU stuff, like the Phoebus uh, US stuff. Uh, so most of July, I spent that and kind of created my, uh, you know, first edition, I guess, of the, my 2021 board. And like kind of, again, it's an extremely early uh, stage of for that draft, obviously. So I'm not like super attached to these rankings, but just again, to sort of have a kind of early impression of these guys and kind of my first kind of feel for them and where around I'd have them. And, you know, like Kate, I'm really high on as a lot of people are, for example, so I already have him number one and, you know, other guys that I think maybe a little bit underrated by like recruiting services and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think obviously the comment you made about not really being able to find AAU tape. I've definitely had the same experience, you know, just looking around on YouTube. seems like there's a lot more sort of full high school games, which that might be maybe, you know, just sort of the the highlight culture, quote unquote, the AAU's kind of produced. Maybe it's just they get more money out of putting out highlight tapes as opposed, you know, like the ball is life sites and whatnot. 
it's it's too bad, but hopefully I, you got to imagine, you know, once the NBA really opens up the drafting the high school kids that AAU tape, obviously the teams have it. There's, there's so much of a draw to fans doing the scouting stuff. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a professional at this point. I'm, I'm, you know, working my way there, but I'm still kind of a fan. But I want to see all these AAU games, you know. It's, it's a fan product at this point. So, yeah, I, re- I really do hope that that becomes more of, a, uh, more of an accessible commodity. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of issues with ac- having access to the AAU. Uh, at least the UIBL, like they streamed all the games for free this year on Twitch, but they did not keep any of the replays. You know, a buddy of mine uh, kind of screen recorded a good amount of them, so we have some of them. But um, yeah, like it's it's pretty difficult. Like a, a lot, they're on synergy. Like if you have synergy and you have like the full access synergy with the high school stuff. Like a lot of NBA teams do, or like a lot of like uh, big media sites have that access and stuff like that. Uh, you find the YBL games there, but like uh, there's other AU circuits, like the Under Armour circuit or the Adidas Gauntlet circuit, and those were pretty much like unless you pay for like Bar TV, like monthly ten dollars a month or something like that, or you know stuff like that, uh, or again unless you have Synergy, like you really can't access those games. Like I was basically unable to watch any. Adidas Gauntlet AU this year and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's definitely an issue. I hope, I really hope that when, you know, they let guys come in straight out of high school, uh, it'll be more accessible or, you know, but, yeah, I'll do my best to find a way, hopefully, at that point to uh, watch those games. Yeah. No, no, I I think it's a very real, uh, I I think there's a very good chance that once the draft opens up to high school kids, it just makes sense that if you have, like, a diehard Celtics fan and your team just drafted some high school kid, like, there's going to be thousands of Celtics fans going to watch this kid's AAU tape. Uh, I, I think it'll be a real drawing point at some point. A lot of people watch, like, the high school games. That's Because a lot of people, yeah. like, if you're just, like, even if you're a pretty hardcore NBA fan, you may not know the, how, like, because, like, like, in my opinion, at least, that AU is a lot more important and a lot more, like, indicative of, for future projection than high school is. But, like, if you're just, like, watching the NBA, even if you watch every Celtics game, you probably don't know that AU is so much more important than high school. So you'll probably just find those high month bird games or whatever the case is uh, on YouTube and you'll watch a couple of those and you'll be good. <laughs> uh, so to be completely honest, I mean, I guess I was aware that obviously AAU is more important. Just the level of competition is so much higher. But, yeah, that's pretty much what I did is just, you know. When I want to see like Isaac Okoro or Anthony Edwards, I just kind of looked them up on YouTube and saw whatever full games I could find. That's that's yeah, it's just a natural reaction you have. I mean, I, I still watch like a lot of those too, and it's not like useless. You still only get out of like stuff out of them, and you could still learn about the player and stuff. I'm not saying like, oh, you're an idiot if you watch high school games or something like that. You know, you could you still it's still like useful, especially if you're trying to do scouting and everything. But AU games are definitely a lot more useful. Like AU games. It's damn near as important as the college sample, in my opinion. But wow. uh, like high school is like, you know, you, there's a lot of misleading information you could get out of high school, especially like the all-star circuit events. Like every year people will be like, even, and I'm not even talking about like the games themselves, because like they have those like the practices and the scrimmages where the guys will play a little bit harder. But even a lot of that stuff is, in my experience, has been very misleading in the past. So you have to be careful with that. Yeah, no, I think you actually hit the nail on the head there. I think I think it's just very difficult to, uh, or so for someone that's you know not as experienced with scouting, it's a lot easier to draw false conclusions from high school tape. It's a lot easier not to be able to contextualize what's going on. Um, yeah, no, I I think that's I think we kind of established that pretty well. Um, 
So I wanted to go ahead and launch into, so you are obviously uh, working at the, uh, or you're, I don't know if you're working at or contributor to the, uh, the Stepien. Um, and actually you were, uh, <laughs> dropped your uh, 2020 big board the night, or maybe it was the day after the 2019 draft. I'm not sure if it was the day after the night of just one of the most, the all-time greatest flexes. I just, I loved seeing that. Uh, but but I wanted to walk through a little bit of the process of creating your big board. So I guess the first thing would be how many players, so for instance, you know, the 2021 class uh, in terms of the draft class, how many of players do you need to have watched before you can really start to rank them? Like if you have two guys that you're really comfortable with, are you already ranking those guys in your head? Or is it more once you've got 10, 15 guys? No, I think I'm always trying to, like, rank them, I guess. Like, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, if you have two guys, they're just going to be number one and number two, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, no matter how good they are. But, yeah, I mean, I'm always – that's kind of oh, my, like, main thing is um, uh, trying to become as good as possible. You know, trying to create the big, perfect big board, which is obviously impossible. But, you know, trying to get as, as close as possible to that. So, then, like, for me personally, I'm always trying to – you know, kind of uh, rain guys against each other uh, all the time. But uh, for creating like the 20, first of all, I'll say that 2020 board that came out the day after the draft, I wouldn't like put huge stock in that. Like right now I'm working on the preseason version of the 2020 board, which we should come out like right before around the start of the college season. And um, yeah, like that one, like I've put in a lot more work into and I think I will be hopefully more like accurate and uh, indicative of what, uh, you know, these guys will eventually be in the NBA and stuff like that. But that one is just more of like a watch list that, that was kind of roughly put together, like in the some semblance of an order, you know, that, you know, those, some of these guys that are near the top are probably going to be around that. And some of the guys that are near the bottom are probably more fringe prospects, stuff like that. So I didn't put a huge amount of work. It was mostly just guys that, uh, you know, from college that I've been watching in this prior season, the 2018-19 NCAA season, because you never know who's going to enter the draft. So you have to, like, for me at least, I try to watch as many guys as possible to have a chance of being drafted or, you know, uh, making the NBA. And, uh, you know, some of the high school guys that I just watched in the AU and stuff like that, obviously, and the international guys and so forth. Yeah, no, and I think it's really important to, you know, obviously the the uh, the 2020 board dropped right after the 19 draft. It's not going to be super accurate, but I think it's important to consider. It's more of a focus on tiers at that point, probably, right? It's more, you know, this group of guys is in the same range and this group of guys is more in the same range. I want to talk a little bit more about tiers later on, but is that, is that is that more what your aim is as opposed to player X is better than player Y? Definitely, especially that stage. Uh, I mean, overall, even, but in that stage, especially, that's the case. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to go ahead uh, talk about. Uh, so let's say you've got maybe twenty or thirty players that you're familiar with in the class. Uh, you're watching another guy. How many? Uh, so what does it take for you to be comfortable, or or for you to? say that you're comfortable raking the guy like how many games approximately do you watch on average before you say okay i've got a good feel of what this guy is i'd say probably about four or five games for like the lower guys i mean obviously i watch a lot more than that for like you know the top guys in the first round and stuff like that but um 
I'd say everybody who I've ranked uh, in my, you know, top hundreds, I probably watched them in a minimum of like four times, I'd say. What's it called? Yeah, the the way like I think maybe what you're trying to get at is like because you can't watch everybody. Right. So uh, yeah. what I do like to filter out, guys, is like I'll start a lot of times with statistical filters. So like I'll create like in the beginning of the season or like right now I already have it. Uh, I'll create, like I said, a watch list of about 200 guys or so, just using mostly numbers, but also using, uh, like I said, uh, what I've seen in past seasons from, you know, obviously it's not the first time I'm watching a lot of these guys. And, you know, what I've heard from other people, like, for example, maybe uh, uh, ESPN will rate a guy that I I don't know much about. Like a few months back, they rated Derek Alston from Boise State in their 2020 uh, mock draft uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I think I'd seen his numbers before, like in passing, but I wasn't overly familiar. But seeing that they ranked him, you know, they're fairly credible source. And uh, so I put him on my watch list and, uh, you know, so so stuff like that. And then obviously, again, stats are a big part of it. If, the, you know, some guy that I maybe I haven't seen before, he's doing really well statistically, I'll add him to the watch list and I try to watch him. And then uh, after I put that watch list together, you know, I try to watch as many of those guys as possible. And um uh, as many times as possible, and um, yeah, they'll just kind of rank them from there. Right. Yeah. No, that all makes uh, sense. Uh, so, in terms of watching like a particular game, so are you someone that more? Um, so, let's say you're watching like a Kentucky game where there's going to be multiple NBA prospects on the floor. How much mm-hmm. do you watch a game just to focus on one guy, both sides of the floor, each and every play, versus? Um, just watching the entirety of the game, watching all 10 players, getting a feel of everybody more or less. Yeah, the during the season, most of the time, I just I fo- like I just watch the game and I kind of focus on everybody and uh, I rewind a lot and like slow down a lot. It takes me like I still well, I never watch game li- games live. So uh, every game I uh, skip all the commercials, but it still ends up like two hours because of how much I rewind and everything like slow stuff down and stuff like that. But I, I usually, usually I'll watch just everybody and uh, take no. I try to take notes. Sometimes I'm pretty lazy about not taking notes, which I should do for every game and technically. But uh, yeah, so I'll do the, a lot of that. And then um, maybe like during this time of the year or like after the college season is over, when I'm doing my final board before the draft, that's when I'll have like certain guys that I'm focused on like, uh, this week right now, I'm watching a lot of the Big 12. So say like right now, I just watched... Um, uh, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and I was like seeing of Christian Doolittle on Oklahoma is, uh, you know, a guy that should be considered uh, for top 100. So I was really focused on Christian Doolittle and uh, Christian Doolittle only. But during the season, I usually uh, watch all the guys. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably a good strategy to use. Uh, and, and one thing that you said, I think there's a lot of merit to the idea of, you know, watching these games on tape and being able to rewind them. Especially, I, I don't know uh, what your basketball experience is, but I so I never played organized basketball at all. Like <laughs> I played lacrosse in high school. I'm, I'm not a basketball uh, mind by any means. So it definitely takes me two or three watches on some plays to really understand how the entirety of the play is happening. And that, that's something that I kind of picked up. Um, I, I've, I've always been a football fan. And in football, I mean, there's like 20 guys on the field you can't even see half of them half the time. So I was always just used to rewinding it. But I, I feel like some people might think that there's like, you know, I feel like there may be like a, a minor stigma to that, you know, just in terms of 
you know, let's just watch the basketball game. Just, you know, what, you have to rewind it three times to see the play. But I, I think that's a really useful tool. And I, I think that's a very good point to make. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends. If you're just like, if my friends come over and are watching the game for entertainment, I'm not going to like keep rewinding. <laughs> They're going to do what the fuck. But like, uh, <laughs> but if like, if I'm doing this for scout, like m- most of the like 99% of the time, if I'm watching a game, it's because I'm doing it from a scouting perspective. Like I'm not rooting. I'm not a, like a quote unquote fan right now. Like I'm not trying to be a fan. At least I, like, I don't, what's it called? I don't like root for anybody necessarily or like I'm not even trying to enjoy the game per se, like I'm like, I'm doing work. Like this is work for me. Like I, it's a work that I really enjoy and I love, but it's like, you know, I'm taking it from the perspective that it's a job. So it's like, you know, that's from that perspective, anybody who does it from that perspective, I've never met anybody who doesn't rewind film, like even like high level coaches. Now they may be able to catch like, I don't know, like Jeff Mungundi or somebody like that, or, or, you know, who's been doing this for decades. They could catch on live watching more than me or you maybe, but uh, they still, when they watch film with their, you know, with their team or whatever, uh, they still rewind and slow down and so forth and so on. But I, I think like I never really played organized basketball. Like I played a little bit, but like no, I I didn't like really learn anything from that. But I don't think like you have to be a player to have first of all to have a basketball mind, and especially you have to have a basketball mind from the uh, standpoint of scouting and player evaluation. Like we've seen plenty of great players that uh, you know uh, have become GMs or whatever, and haven't you know had the greatest track record of player evaluation and drafting and uh you know being a great gm and we've seen guys that are some of the better gms like daryl morey i think he played a little bit of organized basketball like d2 or something but you know what i mean like he's like maybe top three maybe the best gm in the league i don't know but uh you know he's again not the was by no means uh not a like a great player when he in his uh, youth or whatever. Yeah, I don't think that really matters as much, but I do think uh, if you want to do this, you should uh, uh, like go through like YouTube and uh, like places like that and just look up some coaching videos, uh, videos about basketball fundamentals and just learn stuff like that. Like what's the proper technique for, you know, uh, defense, like what, when should you be, I don't know, uh, jumping, like, uh, you know, learn, like, the names of play sets and stuff like that. Like, stuff like that you should learn if you're, like, serious about this. And uh, that's kind of uh, where people that have played organized basketball maybe have an advantage over a layman like me, where, like, they already knew all that stuff coming into this. And I kind of had to learn so, a lot of that stuff on my own, you know. And maybe I did, you know, that um, early on when I started doing this and maybe not knowing some of that stuff kind of deterred me to some uh, to some extent. But other than that, I don't think, uh, you know, organize, playing organized basketball or anything like that is a necessity to be uh, successful in uh, scouting. No, that's true. And that, that, I think that's definitely a much better way to frame it. And I definitely didn't mean to imply that, like, you know, you have to play basketball or you have to be a coach or something to understand the sport. It, it, I just more meant that um, it, it, just that your ability to pick up things really quickly. And obviously, as you said, you already know the terminology, you know the sets, um, you know the interest, intricacies of the game a little bit better. But yeah, there's certainly um, some merit to just being able to study a field and learn it. It doesn't you, you don't have to be participating in the field to learn the field that you're studying per se. As I, like I always say this, but it's not my quote. I, I heard somebody say this, but like uh, you don't need to be like a lung doc. You don't need to have lung cancer to be like a lung doctor, right? Like, it's like you know what I mean. 
That's that's you know what I was trying to think of an example like that, but yeah, that's pretty much spot on. That would be uh, that's I'm gonna steal that quote from now on. <laughs> so I just want to say it'll be two degrees of stolen now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, so I guess I wanted to talk a little bit now uh, back about what I mentioned earlier. Uh, so how much do the idea of tiers come into your ranking? So. Um, I guess, first of all, like, how do you define your tiers? Is it more in terms of like expected NBA value, like this guy or, or, or maybe realistic upside where like this guy could be a superstar, he could be a borderline star, he could be a starter, or is it more of a vacuum approach of like, okay, this is group one, these are the best guys, group two, the second best level guys, etc.? Yeah, it would be more the second group because it depends like on the group of guys that you're ranking. Like you don't you won't always have a group of guys that has a future superstar in it or even an all-star in it. You know, you could be ranking uh the best bench players in the Big Ten. I don't know, like that you know, you're not gonna have any future all-stars there probably. Uh or what alone superstars. So it's it's more just uh yeah, like when there's a big I used to say like uh, my definition used to be like uh guys within the tiers are like more or less interchangeable and then uh, uh you know every tier is like that but it, that's not kind of exactly correct so um uh i think a better way to call it is just uh, saying like whenever there's a big break or a big drop off between two guys that's where i try to place the tier yeah no i think that's reasonable um i, I sort of asked that so one thing that i've sort of always been really interested in is like sort of comparing not just within the year, but like year to year. So trying to establish, you know, okay, Zion Williamson is a great player, but how great is he historically? Like, you know, everyone says he's the next, or he's the best prospect, or at least the most exciting prospect since LeBron, since Anthony Davis, et cetera. But, you know, I, I guess I think it's pretty interesting to sort of define those tiers just so you can see how guys translate across um, years. But yeah, you're, you're certainly right that, especially when you're doing more uh, less of like an overall rankings and more looking at, you know, specific guys. Yeah. It's, it's really about, as opposed to defining the group itself, it's about defining that delineation between the, the two groups. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I more focus on than exactly. Uh, yeah. Like for me, it's, again, it's always been about like, I know a lot of people try to project exactly what a player will be, and uh, like try to uh, kind of put them in context historically, which is all certainly important. And I don't think it's uh, like bad to do that. It's even good, I would say. But uh, for me, the main thing is just to rank the guys against each other in a certain draft class. That's mainly what I focus on. Not so much uh, what exactly each guy will become. Uh, just if they, just more so if they will be better than uh, player X in their uh, own draft class. If that, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. And I think. Um... Uh, it's, so that makes a ton of sense, especially for your role. I mean, <laughs> your role isn't to tell me how good Zion is, you know, the last across 15 years of prospects. It's, hey, we have this draft. Who's best? Uh, who's second best, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's a very reasonable framing for what you do, especially. That's, yeah. That's so, so another thing I wanted to touch on, um, you mentioned earlier how obviously you're always – sort of looking at these other sites, talking to um, your peers, especially I, I would assume, or I, I know y'all at the Stepien talk a ton within yourselves. Um, so I, I guess this is kind of a vague question, but how much are you collaborating with others during the process and how much do the opinions of these people that you respect sort of shape your rankings? And I guess you, you already talked about it a little bit, but maybe if there's a little more you, you could uh, 
extrapolate on? Uh, well, yeah, we just, uh, uh, yeah, like you said, I talk to people that are not even only from the Stepien, but just people on draft Twitter in general almost every day, like either on Twitter and the group chat, we have, um, uh, what is it called, Slack for our, uh, mm-hmm. for exact, just for the Stepien, uh, like, a, it's like a chat up, uh, and uh, so, yeah, like, we talk to each other every day, I mean, uh, I, I mean, obviously, my opinion for my board is going to be by far, like, the major thing, but there's always things that could influence me, or, like, somebody could make a good point, like, oh, no, but did you think of it this way, like, this guy maybe is not, like, uh, like, uh, if you're ranking this guy in the 30th, uh, how could you not have this guy uh, in the, uh, uh, like, near him, like, when there's similar players, or, or, you know, stuff like that, or, like, today, somebody um uh dm me and they they said because we had thought that a player's birthday was um in 95 but it actually turned out to be 96 so uh you know just from getting that information uh, finding out a player is a year younger you know that's a you know fairly uh, important difference you know and that makes me somewhat higher in a player you know from learning factual information like like that and but also from uh you know more opinion-based stuff where like Oh, this guy is uh, is not as good an athlete as you think, or like you know you're maybe overrating this guy's uh, I don't know um, potential as a pull up shooter or whatever the case, uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely have influence from uh you know especially uh you know people on draft Twitter, my peers, those are the people I kind of trust them. I don't uh, really have as much influence from like the major draft sites and stuff like that because um, I think uh, my philosophy is kind of uh, has. Um, some stark differences, I'll say, from some of the more um, bigger draft sites. So, um, yeah, I don't put as much stock in what they say as far as, like, creating the actual, like, as far as, like, ranking guys. But uh, I definitely, like, like I said with Derek Alston, for example, like, if they have a guy that uh, they rank, one of the more credible sites ranks a guy, or even, like, some of the lesser-known sites rank a guy, and I don't know who they are. Like, I want to know everybody. Like, that's, like, my... My two big things, like, for in, at the step in, that would be, like, people would say is my quote-unquote expertise is, like, uh, the AU circuits and then uh, just knowing a large volume of players and so knowing, like, pretty much any prospect that has any fringe chance of ever being an NBA prospect. So I always want to know about every prospect uh, that could possibly have any shot of uh, eventually being drafted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't follow you on Twitter, your Twitter bio is... I'm hoping it's still this, but it's like my my dream one day is to rank the top 400 players prospects out of Alaska. Which yeah, yeah, I mean, that that just 100 percent exemplifies what you were talking about. And I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's something you're doing to specialize yourself. So I guess we could talk a little bit now. I I think we've done a good job covering sort of you assembling your draft board. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit. Uh, so actually. I'm not. I'm not super familiar with your background. Uh, what was your first year that you really got into in-depth prospect scouting? Maybe if it wasn't even um, uh, on a professional level, maybe just more as a fan. Well, I've been like following the draft and following basketball as a fan since I was like a child. But um, you know, uh, around 2016, like uh, I just felt like uh, that. You know, this has always been what I loved, and it's been my dream. So I'm like, uh, you know, fuck it, I'm just gonna go for it, and. Uh, you know, I created a Twitter account, I think, like, late 2016, maybe, or, like, mid-2016. And I just started tweeting, and, like, some of the people that I liked, and I followed, like, um, the people. Some, it's funny enough, some of the people I work with, the, the step, you know, like, Cole and Sean, uh, Darren, um, and uh, Ben Rubin, and, uh, uh, you know, those guys, I was already a fan of their work. And, uh, you know, I would tweet at them, or I would, you know, con- contact them through email or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of... Uh, you, uh, 
built a friendship or relationship with them, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, so probably like late 2016, early 2017, you could say, became really like uh, more serious. And I started to gain uh, a, a little bit of a Twitter following, a couple hundred people or whatever. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So you said the 2016 draft was your first uh, one that you were really into, right? Well, no, uh, I would say the 2017 draft was the first one. Uh, like, there, like I had a, I followed the 2016 draft for sure, and I watched the prospects, but I don't even think I have a board out there uh, for. I think I may have ranked like five guys, like uh, on some like forum I was on or something like that. But I didn't like the first board that's really out there, and I put out like quote unquote professionally, uh, is the 2017 one. Okay, right, yeah, you you, you did say that late 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so. Uh, who are like one or two of the guys that you're really proud of in the last couple of drafts that you feel like you really hit on, I guess, either the 16 or 17 or sorry, the 17 or 18 drafts guys that were a little more underrated consensus, but you know, even within maybe draft Twitter that you were really confident in and you feel like you really hit on them. Well, the, in the 2017 draft, I think the big argument for me was, uh, we had, um, with like Cole and a few other people, a lot of people like Dennis Smith Jr. and uh, had him as high as number two. And I was always, I always thought De'Aaron Fox was a much superior point guard. So that was kind of a big thing for me on tw- uh, draft Twitter is, uh, you know, um, the De'Aaron Fox versus Dennis Smith. At least so far, you know, they're both young. Who knows what will happen? But so far, I, you know, that seems like I was correct in that one. But um, as far as like uh, more like hits, like I said, again, my thing is kind of like the AU circuits and like knowing a lot of players and being kind of quote unquote early on guys. So a lot of the hits I have will be like preseason hits. So like, for example, um, in the 2018 draft in my preseason board, I had Trey Young uh, rated like top 15. I had Shai Gilgos Alexander rated top 15. I had Hamid Yawa rated outside the top 31. In that uh, time, there was like, Nobody literally who had those guys uh, either that high or had the all that low and, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think like Trey and Shay are two guys I'm really proud of being like pretty much the first person to have them rated like near lottery, you know, before the season even started. Like nobody was almost rating them. Pretty much nobody was rating them at that point. Yeah, you know, what? I didn't think about it that way, but that that actually makes a ton of sense, especially with the sort of research you do. Um, and I think one example, um, if anyone doesn't follow you out there, uh, first of all, definitely go follow you on Twitter. Uh, what, what's your what's your at name? Do you know it off the top of your head? Yeah, Mike uh, Grib, G-R-I-B, like boy, and uh, the number eight. So at Mike Grib eight. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so if you, if you have been following Mike, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with Isaac Coro. Uh, and I'd say he's exactly the example of the type of guy you're talking about. He's, I, I mean, I think, I don't even think he's a consensus five-star, is he? He's a consensus no, four-star, it's right? 35th. It's like insanity. I don't know what the hell they're like. I don't know, man. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, but, and he's a guy, I'm I'm not, I think you maybe had him third. I know he was in your top five, right? Yeah, something like that around that area, yeah. Right. Yeah, and it's more of a general thing at this point, but. I think pretty clearly, you know, I, I think Trey is the perfect example of, you know, picking on a guy that's or, or uh, sort of identifying a guy that is going to be a one and done freshman that really is not a, being appreciated um, at the level he should be at this point. So, yeah, I, I think that's um, that was really interesting. Um, but who 
So are there maybe a couple of guys in that same vein of guys you were really high on in the preseason that sort of completely flopped? I, I know last year, you know, I don't know how high you were on these guys, but Nas Little obviously fell a ton. Bull Bull for, you know, different reasons. Uh, even Cam Reddish fell a decent bit. Were there any guys that you were really high on that didn't really work out? Yeah, uh, I mean, I was pretty high on a lot of, uh, no, like most of those guys. So it wasn't, but I would say like everybody was. So it wasn't like I was the only one that missed. I think more like interesting to me, at least, uh, like as far as misses, is uh, one guy that I didn't rate at all in my top 100 was Tyler Hero. And I know some people were already pretty high on him even during the preseason, even though he wasn't a highly rated recruit, but he had a nice summer with Kentucky, had some nice preseason games with them. So, like, uh, people already had him, like, in their top 30, whereas I was kind of, I really didn't think he was that good in uh, AU, and uh, I was kind of skeptical because uh, people have played well in preseason games, and, you know, like, John Petty had a really strong preseason for Alabama in uh, uh, 2017, so, and obviously John Petty is still in Alabama and <laughs> doesn't look like a draft pick. So, uh, yeah, I kind of thought Hero would be kind of a guy along those lines, and obviously I was pretty wrong about that. Like, he may not be an amazing NBA player, but he was definitely much better than Petty. So yeah. uh, that's a guy I really missed on. And then um, Simi Shitu, somebody who I had, like, I don't know if I had him top 10, but I might have, like, honestly. Like, I, I was really high on Shitu. And, uh, yeah, I thought uh, he would uh, be a guy who's kind of underrated, and I was definitely way off on that. So I'm not, like, definitely not a fortune teller by any means or anything like that. Like, I, you know, I, I make a lot of mistakes as well. I'm not, like, claiming to be, uh, you know, way smarter or way better than everybody this or anything. But, yeah, uh, yeah uh, I definitely try to learn at least from those mistakes to the best of my ability. Right, yeah. Oh, well, and I think you have to acknowledge that, it's exponentially harder to uh, sort of forecast guys coming from high school to college than it is from college to the NBA, just because, first of all, there's so many more high school kids, but I think it's just a lot more um, unpredictable. There's, you know, in general, you're a year younger, if not two, three, four years younger when you're coming out of college, or, sorry, when you're um, coming into college as opposed to leaving college. So uh, actually the example you gave Tyler Hero I, I think it's pretty reasonable you didn't have him ranked that high. I mean, I, I think a lot of the stuff that he showed at Kentucky was sort of stuff that he developed while he was there. I mean, I think especially a lot of the more maybe drive game, I think his floater really came along later in the season. And that wasn't, I mean, you would probably know better, but I don't think that was really a huge part of his game in high school, right? Yeah, to some extent, yeah. I think we have to always be careful, like, um, because, like, well, Markel Fultz is a good example. Like, I had him number one in that draft, but I really don't think there's a lot to learn from that, like, from him being not good so far. Because it just seems like a freak case. Like, there's just, like, stuff you couldn't really, like, with the information I had and, you know, most people had, we couldn't really, like, foresee. There's no way to foresee this. But then there's other cases where sometimes you'll be like, oh, I couldn't foresee that. And you kind of make excuses for yourself to continue using the same philosophy and not change when you really should be saying, no, I was wrong, you know, so you have to always kind of have that balance, you know, uh, of uh, knowing not because I hear that a lot from people that analyze the draft, like, oh, yeah, I was wrong about so and so, but uh, I couldn't foresee it, you know, there's no way to know. Oh, yeah. And it's like, no, you could have known, like a lot of people said that, because uh, last year, for example, I had Zion number one coming into the year, but a lot of people had RG Barrett number one. And I heard a lot of people that had RG Bear number one. Oh, RG was number one on all the recruiting sites. How could we have nobody knew that he would be low? It's like, well, I knew he, he was number one. It's like, so like, you know, you there was something that could tell you that, obviously. So, you know, and uh, I could say the same thing for myself. Like, um, 
Yeah, I didn't have Tyler Hill top 100, so to me, it didn't seem like he was top 100. But obviously, some people saw stuff in him that rated him much higher. And uh, I probably there's definitely things, in my opinion, that uh, I missed on, and or not even kind of missed on, but like didn't value enough, like how special his shooting touch is in particular, uh, and uh, you know, uh, kind of um, the reason why I didn't rate him as uh, high as or higher at least. Man, <laughs> so I, I'm actually from Spartanburg. Uh... I got to see Zion a few times in high school. I, I could tell you for sure, everybody in Spartanburg, South Carolina would have told you Zion was going number one. So you, you can make as many excuses as you want, but there were definitely people out there that, that saw that potential in him. Uh, but actually, so I think it's really important what you're saying. Yeah, that you have to be able to take lessons from these guys, but you also have to be able to acknowledge when it's sort of a fluke. And, and I think there's even some of that, you know, within single players. So the guy I'm thinking of right now is Josh Jackson. I think there's a lot looking back at Josh Jackson that we could have foreseen, but I think some of it too is just he was with an awful Suns organization that wasn't really able to sort of help him mature. I think if he got drafted to the Spurs or the Trailblazers or the Pacers, he's probably still not worth the number four overall pick, but I think we're a lot I think we're a lot less down on his career to this point. I think in Jackson's case, uh, there's a couple of things, of course, but uh, one of the big things for him is like off-court stuff. Is just the person he is off-court, like not to say he's a bad person per se, but just like he has some issues personal, I'll just say that. And uh, like that's the stuff, like if you're working for an NBA team, you should know that stuff and you have the access to find out about that stuff. But if you're in the public sphere like I am and you are, uh, we don't really have access to, you know, get to meet Josh Jackson and get to watch him every day in practice in Kansas and, uh, you know, get to speak to his uh, friends and family members and stuff like that. So in that sense, yeah, I think a lot of it was kind of tough to foresee, you know, that we like we didn't know what kind of that he'd be a guy that's, you know, what did he do with the uh, Lollapalooza or whatever, like doing weird shit at concerts and stuff. I don't even so, know. Yeah, but, yeah, but I do think like one thing, like, again, that. This is something that's been kind of a big learning uh, point for me in the last couple of years is just uh, the because shooting is just so important in the NBA today and like how important shooting touches and especially for perimeter players. And uh, in, from a statistical perspective, you got to like free throw percentage is extremely important, turns out, for uh, uh, kind of projecting guys. And uh, that's like one uh, way that Josh Jackson really struggled with his, uh, you know, uh, his free throw numbers were always really bad. And I, and I thought, you know, this guy's young, there's a chance he develops. But uh, I kind of maybe didn't pay attention enough uh, to his, um, you know, his shooting touch in general, like the fact that he just doesn't have the natural touch to develop the jump shot as much as uh, he'd need to, to live up to the expectations of the top five pick. And the same thing kind of applies to Hero in the opposite way, where he's like a 90% free throw shooter, and he has this incredible touch. So maybe even though like some of his athletic and uh, physical talent is a little bit lacking, and he's now like doesn't always make great decisions, like take some questionable shots, but he just has that special touch, and he could just hit shots, and you know that's always going to get you some opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think we've done a pretty good job hitting on that. We can go ahead and move on now to the topic that uh, I, I know you were really interested in. The way I wanted to frame this, so we're going to talk a little bit about guys that didn't really fit into the statistical model of what makes a su- successful NBA player that ex- exceeded expectations and became a successful NBA player in spite of that, as well as some guys uh, that, that were the opposite, guys that the, t- the statistical models really liked that ended up kind of flopping. 
Um, and I wanted to frame this. Uh, <laughs> this, this may come off a little pretentious. I don't know, but I, I, so I read, um, I, I'm, sh I'm sure most people are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, but I, I pulled a couple of quotes from his book outliers. Um, so the first was once a musician has enough ability to get into a top music school, the thing that distinguishes one performer from another is how hard he or she works. That's it. And what's more, the people at the very top don't just work harder or even much harder than everyone else, they work much, much harder. And then the second quote was, success is not a random act. It arises out of a predictable and powerful set of circumstances and opportunities. So I, I just kind of wanted to say those because I, I thought they were pretty interesting in terms of, you know, what it takes to be an outlier and the fact that um, these guys, uh, so I think the one that really stuck out my mind uh, was probably um, Jokic was the one that really just came to mind right right away just because he is such an unorthodox type of player. But I, I think when you really look at it and think about it, these things aren't shocks. Like, yes, you can't necessarily always predict them in the moment, but it's not random. These players are not succeeding at random. Jokic is not a random occurrence. Like it was a very particular set of reasons that he became the type of player he is. It's just not necessarily evident in st statistical models per se. So I'm going to go ahead and hand the floor to you. Um, now that I've rambled on a little bit to start us off, how, how would you sort of, I guess, to start maybe define uh, these exception players or what's most important when we're sort of studying them? Well, I will say for Jokic, uh, statistical models were considerably higher on him than uh, like uh, eye test projections or like the way where he was drafted. I know a lot of people that depend uh, heavily on statistics uh, for their draft projections that had Jokic like much higher than where he was drafted. So uh, his statistics were actually relatively like at least compared to what other people thought uh, indicative of his performance. Like he still nobody rated him top three in the class. Like he should have been like even like would have seen number one maybe in the class. Uh, nobody had him there. But like you know he was drafted like thirty something, and uh, uh, the models at least had him like ten, fifteen, and stuff like that. But uh, with that being said, um, uh, I will say like I think models and like it's not even about models per se because I don't want people to like hear this and think I'm like trying to call out their uh, statistical model or somebody's or like uh, it's more uh, statistical analysis in general, which is often model based. So uh, from that, we've kind of learned that uh, things like steals and blocks, steals especially, uh, you know, assist to turnover ratio and, uh, you know, uh, like uh, free throw percentage, uh, stuff like that. Uh, are really important in projection and then then like other things like usage for example like you know in uh, more traditional scouting like guys that could really create their own shot are highly valued but models have shown that's not necessarily uh, nearly as valuable as people may think uh, or people at least used to think so um you know the uh, stuff like that uh, we go uh, you know there's a lot of different uh, ways to approach it and stuff like that but uh, like the basics of statistical analysis for the draft is stuff like that I think that stuff is very, very useful, and I depend on, on it a lot. And uh, I use it even uh, kind of to apply it to my eye test a lot and uh, kind of think about why uh, steals and blocks are so important um, in statistically. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, because players that um, 
create a lot of uh, steals and blocks are, you know, guys that first of all are athletic but, and or have good physical tools, but also guys that are able to make quick uh, decisions on the floor and, uh, you know, quickly react and make a quick, smart decision. Uh, and uh, that's something that I think is really projectable. So you could watch for guys like that uh, a lot more. Uh, and the kind of those are the guys that often outplay expectations. Uh, so all of that is very useful, but um, uh, I feel like most people, or at least like most people in my little bubble of uh, like draft uh, analysis, are kind of aware of all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we all kind of on the same uh, level as far as understanding that stuff and kind of uh, applying it and using it and uh, getting um, kind of, I wouldn't maybe say not the maximum, but a lot of use out of it as much like a good amount of use out of it and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, since we've already kind of established that, what the next step to me feels like, uh, what who are the guys that are kind of, uh, uh, kind of defy uh, statistical projections, guys that kind of uh, are exceptions, the guys that either uh, do poorly uh, by statistical, using statistical analysis and still end up, uh, you know, successful prospects, or guys on the opposite that do, uh, you know, um, really well in statistical analysis, but don't quite live up to that, um, those expectations uh, in the NBA and uh, what some of the reasons for that may be. So that's kind of uh, what I've been uh, trying to think about recently. Yeah, no. And again, that was a much better way of framing it. Uh, I, I think, yeah, you hit it again, nail right on the head. Um, the, the stati st so statistical models are obviously incredibly important um, and they are very good indicators uh, in general. But what statistics or and statistical analysis in general, what it doesn't do is pick out the exceptions because that's not, I mean, that's sort of the point of statistics is to figure out the general trends, correlations, and whatnot. The the term exception, I mean, it's in the definition. It's it's not part of the correlation. It's not the ordinary. It is an exception to the ordinary. So yeah, and that takes a lot more um, nuance to sort of sort through, sift through. Uh, I, I think you're definitely right, though, that that's sort of the quote-unquote new frontier of scouting is being able to pick out the Jokic's and the Draymond Greens uh, and the Paul Millsaps of the world, uh, as well as to be able to identify guys like Nas Little earlier on, um, guys that just aren't really going to be able to live up to what the stats might imply. Yeah, well, it's funny you say those guys because those are the guys that models actually did great with. Like Draymond, statistics <laughs> did great with, like – uh, most models had him in like the top five, top ten, and uh, as opposed to like, uh, you know, uh, obviously he was drafted like 35 or whatever. Yeah. And uh, Millsap is kind of a long time ago, but the models that uh, people like kind of went back and did re re uh, what's it called? Re retroactive work on older drafts, like he was rated much higher on most models than, but uh, I think uh, like. Uh, I'm not maybe explaining it well enough, but because, uh, no, you're right. The like exceptions, like there's always going to be exceptions in models and like, there's going to be players that kind of defy, uh, the statistical analysis, just, I don't know, because they worked harder or like you said, or for whatever, just, they got lucky. Maybe, I don't know, uh, like, or they just were in the right fit or just whatever reason for a hundred different reasons it could be, but I'm more talking about, um, exceptions in the sense that, um, even the current really advanced statistical analysis still depends on kind of a set of stats, like box score stats in particular, for the most part, uh, like points, rebounds, still, still blocks. Obviously, they use the rates. They use, like, steal percentage. They don't just do steals per game and stuff like that. But, I mean, like, um, here's a good example. Um, Brandon Clark and Graham Williams in this past year's draft. 
Uh, Grant Williams uh, uh, was pretty similar statistically across the board, maybe slightly below Clark statistically, but even in some sense because of his uh, shooting indicators, like he had a lot of more three-point attempts, a lot better free throw percentage. Uh, you know, he uh, he was pretty much equal statistically. And then um, uh, a big part of most statistical analysis and models for the draft is the age. And uh, Grant Williams is more than two years younger than Clark. So from that perspective, if you're using a model or a statistical analysis, uh, I would say uh, you would kind of uh, uh, mostly, uh, most people would say Graham Williams is a superior prospect. Yet, uh, watching them with my eye test, and just in my opinion in general, I think Clark is the better prospect. So that's kind of like why Clark is the exception, or maybe Graham Williams is the exception the opposite way there. Why, you know, why, how is it that, you know, uh, you're from a statistical perspective, like you you would think Williams is the better prospect, but when you're watching with your eye test, like I was pretty convinced Clark was the better prospect. Uh, so that's kind of what I thought about. And uh, in this case, it was because um, uh, Graham Williams uh, spent so much of time in the post and uh, so much of what he does is uh, with his back to the basket. And that's a skill in particular that uh, uh, doesn't translate so well to the NBA, especially to the modern NBA, and especially for guys, smaller players, you know, that, uh, you know, he's not like a sound footer and the uh, guys that, um, you know, really depend on strengths that aren't like overly explosive athletes and stuff like that. So uh, that kind of makes Graham Williams to some some degree, I still think he'll be a good player and I'm a fan of his, but um, it makes him kind of an exception. Like his statistics, uh, his box score statistics are not as impressive as they may seem because uh, uh, there's uh, there's no like or at least no model or no statistical analysis out there that I'm aware of that takes into account uh, how much a player plays in the post. So that's kind of like the exception that I'm looking for is like uh, guys that play in the post a lot that depend a lot on post play for their success at the college level or the lower levels period probably should be discounted somewhat. So we should be adding that to our uh, analysis of guys. Yeah, yeah. So that, okay, that that definitely. Uh, I mean, I think you did a good job framing before, but that definitely helps a lot more. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to leave the examples to you from now on, too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I think using Clark and uh, Grant Williams really helps to to make your point because, uh, yeah, I think, first of all, right, it's the fact that uh, Grant Williams is so much of a post player. Uh, and, and I think, obviously, you can measure this to some extent with vertical, uh, with wingspan and whatnot, but... I think it's pretty safe to say Brandon Clark's a better athlete than Grant Williams. Um, right. And I mean, that's something that's somewhat considered in the statistical models, but there's, you know, having a 45 inch vertical is like kind of helpful, but if you're, you know, a really slow jumper that needs to like stand there and load up, that's not really that useful. And obviously they have um, standing versus max verticals, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is there's some athleticism that is more for show and there's some athleticism that's more functional. So I think um, coming into college, a, a reason or a major reason that a lot of people discounted Zion uh, in terms of, you know, being a potential number one overall pick is because they just saw his dunking and they saw it as more of a show show off athleticism. Not, not, not that he's like, you know, showing off, trying to brag, uh, but just that it's more for show and less functional against actual NBA athletes. And I think what we realized at the college level is that it's not just his leaping ability. It's like, yeah, he takes so much room with each stride 
um, like like those hop steps or whatever that he does. Like he covers so much room. Um, and I think he's, you know, quicker. I think he's more agile than people thought he was. But I, I, I guess, is there anything you want to talk on with that? And then maybe just uh, any of the other uh, sort of skills or traits that you've noticed that seem to be uh, more prevalent in guys that are exceptions? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, Zion is a good example in some sense, also because uh, strength, again, uh, guys that uh, depend on strength that are like heavily uh, post players, those guys are uh, overrated by stats a lot of times, but guys that are uh, dependent on strength and uh, uh, are able to play, you know, from a versatile number of positions, like not like shooting guards, small, I mean, like positions on the floor, like as in, uh, you know, they're able to face up, they could go from the elbow, they could play in the post, they could be cutters, they could run the transition, like Zion, for example. You know, there's a variety of play types that he could attack you in, but he depends a lot on strength. So those guys... Um, Statistical analysis doesn't really underrate them, but uh, more traditional, like I, uh, uh, very eye test uh, based scouting, does underrate guys like that, in my experience. And uh, that's Isaac Okoro actually falls on to, under that in a lot of ways. Also, as guy who you know really depends on his uh, his just physical strength a lot at the lower levels, and for whatever reason, there's this. Um, uh, uh, what is it called, like kind of preconceived notion and stereotype, I guess, that uh, players like that, that really kind of overpower and bully young uh, like players at lower levels, oh, once they get to higher levels, they're, they're not going to be able to do that. But you could say that for any skills, like guys that beat, uh, you know, younger guys with their height, oh, their height is not going to translate. Oh, guys that beat with their speed, oh, their speed is not going to work against, you know, you could say that about any attribute, really. So for whatever reason, guys that, uh, you know, use strength as a big part of their game, this doesn't is not really an exception for statistical uh, analysis because statistical analysis does do well with those guys. But uh, for eye test, uh, like uh, more traditional based scouting, uh, I do find that a lot of guys that, uh, uh, you know, uh, are dependent on strength but uh, are able to play uh, in a variety of play types, not just the post, uh, are often underrated and uh, even times heavily so. So, uh, yeah, definitely Zion applies uh, for that uh, uh, to some extent. And now, as far as, like, you were talking about, like, the leaping, I think uh, the leaping that's often underrated, or, uh, overrated is, uh, like, um, in space, like you said, load up, uh, like, two foot mostly. Sometimes it's one foot, but uh, mostly about two, it's usually two foot, and it's mostly about just, um, like you said, uh, having the time and space to load up, guys like that. In my opinion, a great example of that is John Morant, the guy who uh, really uh, could throw down some really impressive dunks and like uh, throw down on people, but uh, really needs time and space to load up in order to do that. And uh, when he's, uh, you know, going uh, in more tighter spaces and smaller windows and uh, trying to jump, he really doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, hang time and a lot of lift on his jump, especially off of one foot. Uh, for, you know, a variety of reasons, one of them being strength, but, you know, uh, 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 what's it called? Yeah, that's kind of a skill that people will often see in highlights, like John Laurent is this great above-the-rim dunker, but in reality, in the half court, it's not very functional for him. And uh, so on the opposite end, I think a skill that's kind of a, an exception uh, uh, from a statistical analysis uh, 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 perspective is... Um, Having that ability the, of one foot uh, jumping in, uh, uh, in tight spaces and um, small windows, kind of uh, quick, uh, really quickly exploding off your feet uh, in half court situations in particular. And that's something there's, like you said, there's not really a way to measure statistically. 
So guys that have that skill sometimes get underrated by statistics. And um, just from the most recent draft, the guy that comes to mind is Rajon Tucker. He did put up a lot of points uh, at, uh, um, where did he play? I think Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. But uh, really his, uh, like I said, usage is not um, very loved by statistical analysis. And most of his other stats, like steals, blocks, assist to turnover ratio, weren't particularly impressive. But when you watch him play, he's like able to like really um, get up off of one foot and really explode and like with like almost no low time and uh, you know right off the dribble in the half court and uh, you know go from a standstill to a dribble and right onto like a dunk over somebody off of one foot really fast and I think that's a skill that um, you know uh, is um, obviously effective at the college level but even at the NBA level there's not a lot of guys that are able to do that like there's just not a lot of uh, athletes in the entire world that have that, you know, sort of explosive uh, vertical leaping in such a quick uh, 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 time frame and uh, s- such a small, t- tight uh, confines. So uh, I think that's a skill that's kind of a, because you can't measure it really with stats, is kind of underrated. Uh, uh, and uh, that's kind of like a guy, right? Rayshon Tucker, for, exa- for example, could be a little bit underrated by uh, especially statistical analysis. And then uh, another one, uh, just real quick here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going probably going real long here, but uh, real quick, one thing that I've been trying to find uh, um, a way to measure statistically is guys that could uh, move their feet and like contain pick and roll and recover back to their man quickly. So guys like Udoka Zubuki at the college level or uh, Caleb Wesson, guys that are very successful at the college level and have these really impressive statistical. Uh, numbers and translations like a lot of uh, models I've seen will have with Zabuki or Caleb Wesson like top 10 top 15 but uh you know uh people that like you know that actually create draft boards based on night test will always have those guys a lot lower and uh, the difference there is because um Wesson and Azubuki can't contain pick and roll and if you if they go to the NBA like teams are just going to run pick and roll at them like every play down and just going to run them off the floor so how do you measure that statistically? How do you measure guys' ability to, you know, move their feet and contain uh, ball handlers? So that's uh, another kind of quote unquote exception. Yeah, no, and I, I so I think um, one way to think about it would be just uh, I think a lot of where the uh, misconceptions come from in terms of the statistical models are sort of contextual, or or at least uh, when we're talking about these guys like Azubuki, sort of the great college players that don't really translate. And you can kind of tell already that they're yeah. I, so I mean, I think Asbuki could certainly be an NBA player, but right, he's not you know the the top ten pick that his stats may project him as. But it's just because um, to some extent, at least, it, it's tough to really contextualize um, sort of the NBA itself and what skills are relevant in the NBA that aren't relevant in college and vice versa. Um, that's not really something you can easily work into statistical models all the time. I mean, to some extent, uh, I think you could. It's not about working them. It's more about just measuring certain things in general. Like I said, like how do you measure some, like how quick somebody's feet are and like how good they recover? Because you can measure like their lane agility score, but that's not really like because you have to recover like when you're actually doing it in game speed and like uh, you know making reads with your mind and like reacting uh, instantly. There, there's it's, you know it's kind of different than just you know lane agility. So like how do you measure something like that? So certain things that are very important and uh, are kind of useful, uh, I think are there's like it's really at least really difficult to measure. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's very difficult to get a good measurement for them. 
Yeah, you're right. That's a better way to frame it. It's, it's more um, trying to contextualize what really impacts the, the game itself as opposed to, like I was saying, the sort of athleticism that's for show as opposed to functional athleticism. Um, and, and I'm not sure if this is a great example, but I'm th- my examples have been like horrible so far, but I'm going to try it and see. Um, I, obviously, I'm going to use Zion because he's the easy one. But I think Marvin Bagley was also someone that – so I – the last couple of years, I've really gotten into basketball. And one of the ways that I've sort of gotten into it is I listen to a lot of uh, Dunked On, the uh, Nate Duncan's podcast, and yeah. someone that really only watches the NBA and then watches uh, college prospects sort of towards the end of the year once the draft is coming up. Um, and he was much lower on Marvin Bagley than, than the consensus – uh, and I think one thing that I think he and I obviously, to a certain extent, underrated was his ability to it not not you know just leap, but like the second leap, especially that second leap in traffic. And I think I've seen it described both with him and with uh, Brandon Clark as like it's like the pogo stick ability, like they can right. just jump up and then just quickly just leap right back up, or you know even the first jump is just half a second quicker than everyone else. And Zion obviously has that too. And uh, when you match that with just an incredible vertical, you're able to not just get up higher, but you're able to get up to the ball quicker than everyone else, which is so important. Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, that's also, yeah, that's a good example, definitely for like something that uh, you can't really measure like, like perfectly. You could just, you could only really observe it with your eye test. But the problem with observing with eye test is there's, so many mistakes you could make, you know, with just your eye test and you can't watch every game, obviously, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, statistically, there's not really a good way to measure that. And it is very useful. And uh, that's definitely something statistical models weren't very high on Bagley, in fact. And uh, uh, well, I don't think they were like super low on him, but like, I don't, well, I, well, actually, yeah, they were like decent on him. But like, yeah, that's definitely something that statistical models can't really account for in the so many ways and something that uh, could be very useful um what did i want to say oh yeah bill simmons uh made a good point because you're talking about gladwell i know they recorded a podcast today uh well, he said he had uh, once uh, saying that uh if you see a guy in college kind of jump uh, before everybody does for the rebound and get it like while everybody's still on the floor that guy's probably like an nba prospect that's like kind of how you know uh, and uh, yeah yeah like, i mean obviously that's not like something i would heavily rely on but it is a uh, kind of a interesting thing to see sometimes yeah so i actually think that's uh, obviously not that specific example per se but i mean instincts or or even just like you know your reaction time i mean i think that's another thing that might be an example that you can't necessarily measure obviously if you have better instincts and you know a quicker reaction time than everyone else you're probably putting up more points rebounds assists etc uh steals blocks but it's not something uh, in of itself that you can really measure. So I think that's certainly something that could get glossed over to some extent. Yeah, for sure. But uh, see, the thing is, steals and blocks, like I mentioned earlier, are like, especially steals are like really important in statistical projections. And I think the reason for that is not that they only project to the defensive end, like steals project to offense as well, uh, like in a lot of models. And uh, the reason for that is because steals, I think, is kind of like a stand-in for instincts in a lot of ways. Because uh, to create a steal in the passing lanes, like a lot of the times you need to be like really quickly respond and, you know, like make a quick decision, like I mentioned earlier, like quick decision making. And that's kind of like a stand-in for instincts to some degree. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, were there any uh, other sort of traits that came to mind while we were having this discussion that really stand out for uh, these exception guys? Well, I had like one more I'll say is um, in the NBA right now, there's a kind of archetype of players uh, that's really highly valued. And that's like taller wings, like guys that are like six, seven, six, eight, that could legitimately play the three, uh, not just like four. Uh, and uh, that's something that uh, like I've had some issues statistically, like obviously you could do it on field, but uh, like from a statistical perspective, like kind of differentiating, like is this 6A guy uh, 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 kind of a small ball four or uh, or is he a three? Like uh, just using stats, like how do you differentiate? Uh, like, you know, looking at 6A guy, like you could look at their three-point shooting, but that they could just be a stretch four, you know, and then like, you know, how do you um, a kind of, use statistical boundaries to define that a guy's really projects as a wing as opposed to just more of a four. Yeah. And uh, fingers crossed on this example, hopefully it works, but I, I think maybe uh, an example of what you're talking about would be the two Villanova guys in the last couple of years, Mikhail Bridges and uh, Eric Pashal. Obviously I think Pashal has got a lot more weight on him, but in terms of, and obviously there's a lot in the statistical models, but in terms of being six, eight guys, you can look at Pashal and theoretically say, you know, you could try try to convince yourself that he can play three in the NBA, um, but realistically, he's more of a forward. And there's a lot of obviously t- statistical signs between those two guys that would lean certain ways. But just as as an overall concept, I think maybe that gives you a visual. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's not that's not bad. Like you could even go like. Uh... Further, like who's like who's like a six eight guy who almost never dribbles? Like there's guys like well, I I'm thinking of some, but they're like small school guys that not a lot of listeners may know. Like a Jakinan Gant is a six nine guy who's pretty athletic, has like impressive athletic numbers. Like he's like as far as like uh, run and jump athleticism and has good shooting numbers. So like just looking at his numbers, you could think, oh, this guy's like a six eight six nine wing. But then when you watch him play, like this guy can't dribble at all. Like he could, like he could only shoot spot threes. He can't put it down in the floor, or, like finish around the rim. But you know, there's no way this guy's a wing. So like, how do you differentiate from between him and then like DeAndre Hunter on the other hand, who does have some potential to play the three, but you know his stats are not necessarily. There's no like at least the box score stats don't really show any significant different something to point to that would you know uh, distinguish him as a wing that, that Gant has or doesn't have. Yeah, okay, so I actually like the Hunter example a ton because he's he's one of those guys before um, I really watched the tape on him or, you know, watched his games just because you know, his, his, games, his games were on quite a bit on TV. Yeah, I, I, so I think looking at his statistical profile, you don't necessarily see uh, his ability to sort of dribble. And, I mean, he's not going to be a huge shot creator at the next level. But, I mean, he, he created some shots at UVA. I mean, he was... I think Ty Jerome was, you know, obviously a really good offensive player and Kyle Guy was good, but I mean, he was their offensive engine, quote unquote, you might say. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. I think either him. Well, I mean, yeah, all three. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would probably lean to Hunter. If I had to choose one, I'd probably lean Hunter. Maybe this would be a bit way to put it. If you need a basket at the end of the game, you probably go to Hunter, right? Yeah, like a two point shot. Yeah, definitely. A three pointer, right. I'd probably go. Yeah, but two, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, yeah, I, I think that was a, I think that was a really good discussion. Uh, may, maybe let me just ask you one or two more questions before we round this out. Uh, I know we're going a little long at this point. So, so what's maybe one thing 
uh, and this sort of ties into what we were talking about. What's one, maybe just one way in general that casual fans or people that aren't as in tune with the scouting process go wrong when uh, watching guys in college and trying to predict them into the NBA? What's something that, you know, isn't just common knowledge when you're watching a guy in college, I guess? Yeah, I think uh, just, again, steals are super important. And uh, I think just uh, team defense, uh, when you're watching from the ITS perspective, like, don't just watch for steals because you don't like you could just look up steals on a stat site if you're just watching for steals. No, watch like their team defense if they're making the right rotations, if they're in the right place, and like quick decisions even the offensive and also like guys that like move the ball quickly to the right guy. Like and I mean like quickly move the ball like uh, you know like a chain uh, uh, ball movement and uh, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, just uh, like quick decision making, but especially because. On offense, I feel like people will see, will, will watch that. Uh, but like on defense, a lot of times people don't really watch like uh, guys on the weak side making rotations and being in the right place. So, and I think that's very, very important uh, for projection. And uh, I think that's uh, maybe people, a lot of people will miss on that. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really good example. And I think so. Maybe one way to think about it is, I mean, I think sometimes like a failed play is more important than a successful. You know, so example would be, you know, sometimes jumping a passing lane and you just barely miss the steal and the guy ends up scoring. On paper, that looks a lot worse than, you know, if if the offensive player just made a terrible pass and threw it right to you, but you blew the coverage. Or uh, an example I was thinking of is. You know, if you make a three-pointer, but it's like a banked-in three that was total, you know, completely lucky versus uh, a missed shot that was really close, but, you know, it was maybe like a 30-foot pull-up, you almost hit it. Like, that's more indicative of something. So, like, the Carson Edwards example would be what I'd go to. You know, him missing a 30-foot contested pull-up, but having the confidence, and not just the confidence, but clearly the ability, uh, that you know, the core strength, the leg strength to be able to take it that's more indicative than some lucky random banked in three point shot, even though on paper one shot counts for three points and the other counts for zero. Right. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah. You should definitely shot making in general is very faulty for the eye test. Cause even like, if you watch even like 10 games of a guy, you could still be like uh, kind of misled that they, you could have still watched their 10 best, like 10 of their better shooting games. So like, you should never almost, uh, and uh, if you're using purely the eye test, almost never care about makes or misses. Just look for mechanics, uh, you know, uh, balance, uh, 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 kind of shot selection, uh, stuff like that. Uh, don't worry about makes and misses so much in the, when you're using the eye test. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something that if you're not um, intentionally focusing on would be very easy to fall into the trap of. I, I mean, I'm, I know I do it all the time, just... Cause, cause I still do too. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, we grew up as fans. You know, <laughs> we're not trying yeah. to watch the guys form, and we're watching as a fan. You're trying to say, oh, did the guy make the shot? I mean, because if it's you know Game Seven of the NBA Finals, if Kyrie misses that shot, well, I don't really care if his form was good. You know, you kind of got to make the shot at some point. That's that's a lot different when you're uh, doing scouting, obviously. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, for scouting, like if you're going like for results, like how good of the guy is this shooter? How good of a shooter is this guy? Uh, like results-wise, you should always look up stats for as many games as you can. 
But uh, uh, if you're going for eye test, trying to see through the eye test how good of a shooter they are, you should never almost worry about makes or misses, especially in a single game situation. Because uh, there is like, you know, shooting is just very streaky thing. And uh, on the defensive end too, like shot contests outside of like 10 feet are almost meaningless. Like it would take a huge difference if the guy's like wide open as opposed to a guy's right up on them. Yeah, it makes, it matters. But uh, whether a guy contests it with being three feet away or one feet away, all statistical analysis has shown that that's like pretty much meaningless outside of 10 feet. Shot contests are only really important within like in the basket area. Interesting. I, I wasn't even necessarily aware of that. Um, yeah. So uh, to close it out, uh, you want to just maybe give us a couple of college prospects, whether they be incoming freshmen or otherwise, that some of the people that listen to this podcast that are sort of NBA centric and don't really know any of the prospects should really start to become familiar with? Yeah, I think the top two prospects right now are um, Anthony Edwards at Georgia and Cole Anthony at North Carolina, in my opinion, are the two top prospects in this class. And the, but then as far as like a little bit more under the radar guys, like um, like you mentioned, I'm a big, big Isaac Okoro fan at Auburn. He's like a great athlete and defensive player, really smart player. And uh, again, really good athlete, but kind of not a great shooter. So uh, kind of will need to develop his jump shot uh, throughout his career at Auburn, maybe even if it's just one year. Uh, and then uh, um, a few guys like an international scene. I don't know if people will watch a lot of international though, but uh, there's like Danny Abdiha and Israel and a couple of French guys, Theo Maldon and Killing Hayes. And uh, yeah, but uh, really I would say uh, uh, Edwards and Anthony are the two top prospects. And uh, I, a lot of people will probably will watch Lamelo in Australia. I think that his games might come out on ESPN later in the year. So yeah, Lamelo I think is uh, maybe sometimes underrated by some people because uh, they kind of don't like all that hype around him with his dad and all that. So they kind of uh, uh, quote unquote take it out on Lamelo's ranking. But I actually think Lamelo is like legit. He's legit talent and uh, one of probably the top five, or maybe if not the third best prospect in this class. Yeah, so I'm actually really glad you mentioned Lamelo because so um, I, I think there was some point in June maybe I, I hadn't really so actually it would have been before the 19 draft so I was still trying to do stuff on the 19 draft I mean this was the first year I really dove into the scouting and whatnot so I, I wasn't looking at all into the 2020 guys so my knowledge of Lamelo Ball was like when he was a sophomore at Chino Hills like because I, I had sort of watched him a little bit when he was there with Lonzo I think. It may have even been that far back. So I, I actually I remember my dad asking me like, "Hey, is this you know the Lomelo kid? Is he gonna be a draft prospect or is he a lottery pick?" And I was like, "Uh, you know, he might be just because he's got the hype because he's a ball, but he's probably not that good. Like, you know, he's probably overrated." Nah, Lomelo Ball is legit. I mean, he you know he may not pan out. There's certainly some. Uh, uh, I mean, there's there's some stuff to be concerned about, but man, he can really shoot and and he can pass at a really high level too. He makes some incredibly creative passes. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, he's all, his defense is underrated too. Like he's a smart defender. He they don't always like they're a really high up tempo team and they're really like offense based team. So like people would like talk crap about his defense. But first of all, everybody takes plays off defensively in high school. There's nobody that goes 100% on defense, except like Isaac Accor or somebody like Anthony Melton. There's almost, I've never almost seen a player that goes 100% defensively every play in high school. But uh, like when he's like zoned in, like he has pretty good defensive instincts. He makes some good decisions, like gets in the passing lanes, really disrupts uh, the opponent defensively. And uh, I think he's not as strong and as bouncy as Lonzo is, like vertically. 
but I think he's more kind of a fluid and like has more like flexibility and body control. So he could actually like, you know, Lonzo, if anybody watched him uh, for more than a couple of games, uh, I'm sure you've noticed like he really struggles to score off the dribble. Like if he like drives to the basket, it's going to be like some awkward runner or something like that. Like Lamella has a little bit of that, but he's a little bit more comfortable like creating uh, uh, for himself and teammates off the dribble consistently. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm sure there's definitely some extent to which um, NBA people are just going to, yeah, project the uh, the weaknesses Lonzo showed onto Lamelo. But yeah, I think it's really important to note that he's he's not just Lonzo's brother. He's a, he's a legit prospect. Um, yeah, I can't I can't wait to watch him. Can't wait to watch all these guys. Um, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time out of your day. Obviously, everyone should subscribe to the Stepien. NBA draft podcast any work you've had come out on the step in recently or just anything else you want to plug in general just uh listen to my podcast also like listen to this one but uh listen to mine's also you can like how, how often do you release an episode like once a week I, I I'm trying to do twice a week twice a week okay but still like come like two hours or so like after that you're gonna be bored at some point anyway work or wherever so uh yeah listen to my podcast also once a week uh, we're doing right now all the previews um, for uh, 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 every like conference. We already did the international guys. So right now we're doing every college conference. Uh, we just recorded the Big Ten, and then we're going to record uh, mid-majors, I think, next Monday. Uh, so we're going to do all the mid-major uh, top prospects, talk about have a guest. And every episode, we also have a guest in, during the offseason, and we discuss kind of their philosophy, kind of what me and you did today, kind of a little bit of that. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, just check out my podcast and I might be writing an article at some point, but like, I'm like, I'm pretty bad at writing, honestly. And I don't like, uh, always want to do it to be honest. So, uh, we'll see. I mean, I'll, I'll probably write something up at some point, but for now, just listen to the pod. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, the Stepians, uh, y'all's podcast is probably my number one sort of go-to draft podcast other than. Um, I guess Sam Vecini's game theory, which uh, Stepien's old Coles Wicker is a common guest on. But yeah, you you and Ross do an awesome job with the pod. Um, Ricky Ignacio, all the guests you guys have on are really entertaining and really insightful about the draft. Uh, some of the best coverage out there. Everyone, definitely subscribe to the podcast. Um, I would say go and follow Mike on Twitter. We mentioned it earlier, but it's Mike Grib, G-R-I-B-8 on Twitter. And go check out his 2020 board. It's more of a watch list, as he said, but it's a lot. <laughs> so it's a lot more uh, a lot more guys than I know in the 2020 class, that's for sure. Mike, I, this, I can't express enough how awesome this was. I really appreciate you coming on. Just thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I love doing these, so I'm excited to go on. Yeah, dude. Um, I'll definitely have to try to convince you to come back on later. That's all I've got for you. Thanks for talking to me, man. All uh, right, man. Yeah, I'll catch you later. Have a good rest of the day. Yeah. All right, peace.